Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And our text this morning will be verses 6 to 15. It's a big section. I hope we get through it today. But we do have all afternoon. So we're good. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Listen to the word of God as Paul writes. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we commend and exhort in the Lord, or command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ, to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, Do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will not be put to shame, or so he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Join with me in prayer this morning before we go to the word of God. Our gracious heavenly father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you that you revealed yourself so that we can know you. We thank you that you put it in human language so that we can understand. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that now illuminates these truths to our heart. And so this morning, again, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher And that he would teach us the truths of these words and that he would impress them upon our hearts. And that he would give us the ability to to submit to the word of God and to be obedient to it. And so use your word in our heart as you see fit, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we live in a society that has really elevated entertainment to its top priority. If we look around more and more, we see entertainment taking over every area of our lives. We have used to, we used to measure people's entertainment by saying, how much television do you watch? But nobody knows what that means anymore because they've gone to their computer, well, that's all too, everybody's on their phone. In fact, The only time we see our teenagers' faces is when their phones break or their battery goes dead and they look up. 
then we're not always sure who they are because we don't recognize them because we don't see their faces. But our society continues to go down that line where we work only to what? To play. Remember the work week used to be longer. It used to be, when I was younger, it was 45 hours. Now it's down to 40 hours. We're down to a five-day work week from a six-day work week. We continue to shrink it. In fact, in Europe, 35 hours is seen as a full-time job. After all, we have to have our time off. And so recreation becomes where it's at. And our goal is simply to what? To be entertained. Well, we know this, that one sign of societal breakdown in every single empire has always been the same when entertainment has been elevated over work. In fact, we know a society is in, problem, is in trouble when the entertainers make more than the entrepreneurs. And we see that taking place today. Well, we might expect in a fallen world that men would shirk work and that they would try to get away from it. Unfortunately, it has not been left to the world. The church has also been engulfed in the same idea. Where the church, many in the church have taken those same ideas and they live their lives that way. And so we're enthralled with the idea of Freedom 55. I can retire early. We can travel the world. We can, do, we can go to the beaches of the world and we can collect seashells. Right? As John Piper says, we're going to have a lot of Christians who get to heaven and they're going to say, Lord, look, see my seashells. I gathered these. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. Because after all, Mankind was made to work. Mankind was made to work. In Genesis, in the beginning, God what created the heavens and the earth. And he created the heavens and the earth in six literal days. And during that time, he created man. And he said this about man. I have given you a mandate. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to rule and subdue the earth. Now, incumbent in those commands are, is work. You can't rule and subdue without work. And even in its perfect condition, the world needed to be what? Ruled and subdued. In fact, the work ethic is, is again spoken to us in Genesis chapter 2, where he says in Genesis 2 verse 5, there was no shrub of the field, was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, and get this, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Adam was made to work and to cultivate and to work hard. In fact, he was given a helpmate to help him because he couldn't do it all. Now, she wasn't to go out into the field and work with him, but she was to work in a place where he was not. And he filled it, she filled in his weaknesses. And so she could take care of the children and she could take care of, of things at home while he worked. Well, the delight of work soon left because we know that the fall happened. 
Adam and Eve fell into sin. And at that point, then God then cursed man. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, he cursed Adam in his role, and he cursed the ground. And then he said, by the sweet sweat of your face, you will eat bread. In other words, now you will have to work extra hard to survive. You will have to work extra hard if you are going to subdue the earth, because if you don't subdue it, it will subdue you. And God is in one swell swoop saying to us, listen, nature left to its own is not good. Nature needs man to actually take care of it. He needed to take care of it when it was in its perfection. He certainly needs man's help now when it is under God's curse. And so man was created to work. This is what his mandate would be. He would now, by the sweat of his brow, in order to survive and to fulfill God's mandate, which was never taken away, he must work. Certainly, we have seen the results of work. North America was built upon the Puritan work ethic as they worked for the glory of God and as they worked, recognizing the need to work. And so we know that God's ways work even in a fallen world. But somehow we have lost this and we've lost this in the church and now all of a sudden work has become something that is... Uh, well, we would call it an inconvenience on our way to having fun. And unfortunately for many Christians, it rules their lives. But the Bible does not know anything about Christians retiring. The Bible doesn't say when a Christian gets 65, he just checks off. He stops being a Christian. He stops being productive. He just, he just goes and collects seashells. The Bible actually doesn't say anything about that. It actually calls you to be diligent to the end, to persevere to the end. It doesn't say check out when things get difficult or when you get tired or when things get difficult. But it calls you to continue to work. Well, Paul is dealing with exactly that problem here in Thessalonica. There are those in the church who have decided that, guess what? Work's not for them. Work's not for them. Now, the Greeks were not big on work to begin with. And certainly, if they had been influenced by any bad theology that they were in the day of the Lord, they figured, what's the point? The end's coming. We may as well coast. But whatever that was, we have a group of individuals within the th church at Thessalonica who have stopped working. And so Paul will now correct that idea and he will correct them and in correcting them and in giving instructions both to those who are faithful to work and those who are unfaithful in their work, he will ultimately give us six motivations for the Christian to work. Six motivations that each one of us should take to heart here this morning. And wherever we are on that work ethic degree scale, we need to take these motivations and take them to heart so that we work as God would have us to work and that we would work for the glory of God. And so this morning we will see those six motives laid out for us. We will say, first of all, that 
The first motive is you simply don't want to be ostracized. You do not want to be set out from the rest of the believers, set apart from them. Secondly, we will see the example that God, that Paul has given to us. He has given us an example in his life to follow. Number three is particularly close to my heart. What should motivate you is your desire to eat, to eat, right? Work means you can eat. It brings peace within the body. There's a harmony that comes. It's not disruptive to it. It keeps you from being shamed. Do you want to be shamed because you don't work? Paul says, actually, it brings shame if you don't work. It should motivate us to get out of it. And thirdly, we should respond to the love of those who would come and deal with our work, that we would recognize and, and respond in love to the correction that we take. So all of these things should motivate us to work. So Paul begins this section with this little command here. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. And so Paul says, here's the danger of, of, of being ostracized, of being sent away from the fellowship. He says, now we command you, we give you an order. In other words, what I'm about to tell you, church, and what you are to be doing as individuals is not something that's open for debate. It's not to be modified on your part. It's not something that you can decide whether you're going to take it or leave it. But it's, it's binding on you, and you are expected to obey this. In verse 4 above, the writers had expressed their confidence that the Thessalonians would obey their commands. They said, we, we think, we, we know that you will uh, do this. We are confident in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And now he gives them a command for them to do it. Now here is the test of the road and th their confidence will be tested. And so he says, I'm speaking here primarily to those who are obedient, to the you who are obedient. And he says, and he gives us a greeting as well. We command you, you brethren, you faithful brethren, you who, whom I love, you who are in the family of God. And he appeals to them with a sense of duty to the spiritual brotherhood. In other words, he wants them to re recognize they have a responsibility to the brotherhood. In other words, when you got saved, you got put into the church, which means now you're not just responsible for you, but you're responsible for what? The rest of your brethren. And so there's a corporate responsibility that takes place here. So he says, now we com command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The command is given now with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his official representatives and we represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we say comes from him. He uses the full title, our Lord Jesus Christ, to demonstrate the dignity of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, recalling all believers to recognize who they are responsible to, who is giving this order ultimately. And that the Thessalonians must, the Thessalonians must carry out 
this disciplinary action as those who what? Acknowledge the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is the command that he gives. They are to keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Now this treatment here is sterner than when he spoke to them about those who had an unruly life in in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. There they were to admonish the unruly. They were just simply to admonish, to encourage them to do what was right. But here he says, keep away from them. So he's gone to that next step. It's getting sterner. It's getting stronger. And since the admonition had failed to simply say by admonishing them, and and maybe they had admonished them, but they had not responded, he says, now we need to go to the next level. Social pressure is is now going to be put upon them in the way of segregation. Keep away has the idea of to draw back or shrink back, to avoid or to hold oneself apart. And so they are to practice and make it a practice to withdraw themselves, or we would say this, to personally separate themselves from the disorderly and withhold fellowship from them. So he's saying pull back, don't be, don't be giving them fellowship. You personally must do this. And you must continue to keep away from the offender as long as he is offending to impress upon them that their undesirable behavior will ultimately produce what? Gaps between themselves and the rest of the church. In other words, there's going to be a gap. There's going to be a fellowship gap that takes place because they continue not to work. And so we would say this, that minimally it implies that they shouldn't be in the love feast, that they shouldn't be at the Lord's Supper, and that they shouldn't be fellowshipping with other believers. He says every brother, so it doesn't mean everybody in the church. In fact, most of the church is doing well, but there are, there are some among them who are leading an unruly life. There is, there is a group of individuals within the church that fall into this category who live an unruly life. Those who live an unruly life means that it is a deliberate course of action of their life. In other words, their disorderly conduct is not an occasional lap, but a persistent practice of theirs. And from the usage and from context here, it appears that when he's talking about an unruly life, he's talking about individuals who are addicted to loafing, those who are refusing to work. They are idle. And so Paul says, keep away from them. He says these individuals not only are living an unruly life, these individuals are also described as those who live lives not according to the tradition which you received from us. And again, Paul, this teaching is specific teaching the missionaries had given to their converts back in 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions which were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And the idea is those 
who live lives not according to the teaching or the tradition which you received from us. Now, there's some debate among scholars where this should be read, they received from us or you received from us. And I would understand that this is better translated, which they received from us. And the idea, because the word here for received indicates that they they received this teaching in the past, but it seems to indicate more the idea of a formal reception of the ear rather than an active appropriation of the teaching. In other words, they have heard it, they are aware of it, they simply haven't implemented it in their lives. And so Paul says they they are not living according to what they know. They have been taught, but they refuse to keep it. And so Paul says, here's one motive. Here's one motive that should motivate you as a Christian to work. Now, we often don't think of this because we're, we think ostracization or getting people, putting people out of the fellowship has to do with murder and infidelity and maybe robbing a bank. But did you ever think that we are actually supposed to do this for the people who refuse to work? And Paul says, this should motivate you to work because you will lose the fellowship of fellow believers and you will be set out into a hostile world without that fellowship And he says, this should motivate you. Do you want to lose the fellowship of other believers? Paul says, this should motivate you. This should be enough to get you off the couch and working. Well, Paul says, not only is is there the danger of ostracism, but he says the next motivation should be the apostolic example, the example He says in verses 3 to 9, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working day, night and day, so that you would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. And so Paul says, here's a, here's a justification for the, for the command that I have just given. This command is now warranted in light of our apostolic example. We already were an example to you of how to work. It's a motivation for folks that they should look at Paul's life and and see what he did and then follow. He begins this with, for you yourselves know. Now this is a familiar thing that Paul does. He continues to refer back to what they already know. He appeals to their memory. And he's done this several times through 1 Thessalonians and through 2 Thessalonians. And he says, you yourselves know. You already possess the needed knowledge. 
it's, you, you know. You yourselves have already received this knowledge. This is common knowledge at Thessalonica. You can't plead ignorance. You, you don't need to be told again. The failure of some to live according to the teaching is not because they were ignorant, but because they were unwilling. They simply were unwilling. He says, you know yourselves how you ought to follow our example. In fact, you remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, that, the, that the imitation of the apostolic example was seen as, a, as joyful and a blessed reality. They were commended for that. Paul rejoiced in the fact that they did that. And Paul says, you know how you ought to do this. You know that you should be doing this. Now that little word ought takes away again the idea that maybe he's just suggesting it's a good idea. Right? He doesn't say it would be a good idea. The word ought here is actually the, has the idea of must. You must imitate our example. You know how to conduct yourself. You've seen how we've conducted ourselves. You must do it. Now that might seem like a high demand. Paul says, follow my example. But Paul is confident that the example that the missionaries put forth before the Thessalonians was a good one. It was a worthy model for their conduct. They had preached with their lives as well as their sermons. They had lived out what they taught. And he could confidently say, as he said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me even as I also am of Christ. So he says, you know how you ought to follow. And then he gives the motives, what they did do, or the negatives, what they did not do. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Here's our historical justification of our, this is why our modeling is trustworthy. We did not act in an undisciplined manner. The whole time we were with you, we didn't act in a way that would cause trouble. We didn't laze around. We had no disorder in our life when we were there. We worked. We didn't live off other people. We didn't sponge. We didn't do what these Thessalonians were doing. We lived in a way that we demand. He said, nor did we eat anybody's bread without paying. does not mean simply to take a meal, but rather to receive maintenance to get a living is what he's saying here. In other words, he's not saying that they didn't go out for a free meal at someone's house, right? When someone invited them over, they went there to eat. I want to make that very, very clear. <laughs> that they, when they were invited, they ate, right? So they, 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 took, they took a free meal as people invited them over for fellowship and supper. But what he is saying here is, we did not ever laze around and then expect others to feed us and to live off of them. We were not dependent on them for living. And it was, a, it was actually a, a gift that cost Paul because 
he says positively, but with labor and hardship, we kept working day and night. Again, that's familiar words back in 1 Thessalonians 2.9 when he discusses how they behaved while they were there. He says, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And he says, rather than than doing these other things, instead of expecting you to take care of us, we came with what? Labor and hardship. We worked hard. We labored with our hands. We faced hardship. We were tired. We had difficulty. And he said, we kept working day and night. Now again, the idea here is not that he worked 24-7. Right? Nobody can do that. God created night for a reason. Why? Sleep, right? There, were, there, were no, there was no electricity and lights in the garden, right? God had created us to sleep. But Paul is saying he worked to exhaustion and he worked when it was necessary. And there was times for periods of times where he had to labor at the nighttime and, day, and he had to labor during the day. And so Paul worked himself and labored to exhaustion. And he says, here's Paul's motive. Why did he do that? So that we would not be a burden on any of you. Paul wanted to make sure that when he came and he brought the gospel, and when he ministered to people, that there was nothing in the way, that he did not become someone who was seen to take advantage of the people that he was giving the gospel to and that he was surviving off of them. He wanted the gospel to be the first issue, not secondary, and he did not want it to be discredited because he took money. And Paul says, we did this not to be a burden on you. Now listen to this. They live this way not because they did not have the right to do this. Paul is giving up his given right. Paul is not saying, and he's not protesting against the principle that ministers have a claim to maintenance. Paul was clear in 1 Corinthians 9, 3-14, that ministers of the gospel who work hard at it are have the right to receive support for doing that. Paul is sensitive about his right, his moral power and authority to receive support from his missionary labors. And he insists on that fact and that that fact not be forgotten. So Paul is not trying to to say, by my example, no one can receive money from from working in the gospel, but rather his point is, is simply that he did this, not because he, he did this to took away his rights because he wanted the gospel to go forth unburdened. But he also did it, it says, but to order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. So here is this other idea. We did it in order to offer ourselves as a model for you. In other words, we put the blueprint on how you should live, how a Christian should work. We want it to be an example to you. And so they didn't take money and they worked hard. 
to demonstrate to others, not just so that they wouldn't be a burden to the gospel, so that they would be a good example to others. And Paul wants them to imitate him. Here's our example. In other words, an example is something to be followed. And Paul says, I want you to be hardworking. You saw how we worked and labored among you. I expect the same from you. And I did this because I knew that this might be an issue. And we did it to be an example so that you would follow. And so Paul is clear to them, follow my example. He began, he begins, he ends where he began to follow his example. And Paul says, let this motivate you to work. You saw how we worked. You saw how the apostles of Christ who had above all else the right to take and to be supported and we didn't. How much more should you work hard to support yourself and follow my example. And Paul says, let this motivate you. If great men of God were willing to support themselves and to work, how much more should we be willing to work hard, to put in the labor, to put in the effort? And so Paul says, let my example motivate you. Let my example motivate you. Now, we may camp on number three. But Paul says, not only do you have to worry about being disfellowshipped or following my example, these should motivate you. But he says also, the fact is, what should motivate you is your desire to eat. Your desire to eat. Paul says in verse 10, for even when you were, we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. So Paul says, when we were with you, we used to give you this order. In other words, first of all, this is a command. We gave you this order. This is a command. This is not, again, something that is just give it or take it. It's not just some sort of idea that would be good to follow, but it's binding on them. And he says, for even when we were with you, when we were with you face to face, when we spent day after day with you, we gave this to you personally. And he says, when we were with her, we used to, give, uh, used to give you this order. In other words, we gave it to you repeatedly. We used to give it to you. In other words, he's saying, I didn't just say it once to you. I said it over and over and over again. Most of the disciples would probably be saying that in their homes because they had heard it so many times. This was something that was probably burnt into their brains. If anyone is not willing to work, then he will not eat either. Now notice this. The command is this. If anyone is not willing, or the statement, the teaching, if anyone is not willing to work, 
then he will not eat either. So this statement accept the facts that there are individuals or persons who are not willing to work. And the word willing means to purpose, resolve, to wish, to want, to be ready. And so the point here is not their inability to work or their lack of opportunity to work, but their unwillingness to work. There is no reproach on those who are too weak to work. There's no reproach on those who don't have the capacity to work. There's no reproach on those who are unable to find work. That's not his point. His point here is what? A defective will. That's his point. That you are unwilling to work. Now, here's something that I want us to understand. Paul's command here condemns the idle rich as well as the idle poor. I'm going to say that again. Paul's command here goes for the idle rich as well as the idle poor. In other words, Paul's point is you need to work. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter how well off you are. To have lots of money in the bank and to sit and do nothing is unacceptable for the believer. You don't get to say, well, I inherited a lot of money, so now we're going water skiing, we're going to go jet setting, and we're going to go collect seashells. That's not the life of the believer. Finley remarks, this law makes that a discredit which one here spoken of as if it is the privilege and the mark of a gentleman to live upon one's means, to live without settled occupation and service to the community. In other words, you are created to work. You are created to work no matter how much you have achieved and no how much you have saved. Now, generally, this word is used of of working with one's hands, connected with manual labor. But certainly, it refers to being busy in a productive way. Now, it's interesting. He says, for such loafers, Paul says, a simply remedy, then he shall not eat either. He shall not eat either. Again, the imperative makes clear Paul is not stating that one who does not work will not have anything to eat. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, if you don't work, there won't be any food for you. He doesn't say that. He says very clearly that the loafer must not eat if he does not eat. If he does not work. He is not to eat if he does not work. That's the point. And so he says to the church, listen, be careful because the loafer is not to be supported out of a false sense of charity. In other words, 
there's a misguided charity that comes. And often people say, well, we're Christians and we love people and we just want to do what's best for them and we want, to, we want to make sure they don't starve. And Paul's point is, actually a little starvation would be good for them because it will motivate them to work. And in fact, you do them no favors. In fact, you are in disobedience when you continue to indulge, when you continue to give them and enable them to live the lifestyle where they are loafers. You will never help them overcome their indolence if you continue to feed them. So Paul believed in the dignity of human labor and he insists that all who profess faith in the gospel must be engaged in toil. They must work. As one writer says, Christian charity is not to overcome the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Christian charity is not to overcome the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Linsky says this, this dictum abolishes all false asceticism, all Christian disinclination to work, all fanatic exaltation above work, all self-inflicted pauperism. Do you hear that? That last one just kind of hit me over the head. In other words, you don't get to say, I get to live the simple life I'm just going to just do the minimum and I can survive. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my little cabin in the woods. I'm going to do as little as possible. I'll raise just enough of vegetables for me. And I will, stay, I will be poor because I just don't feel like working. It's just easy. God says you're supposed to work. God says you're supposed to work. That means whatever you put above work is actually an idol. Outside of your love for Jesus Christ and God and obedience to him, anything that you put over work is actually an idol because that is what you're supposed to do. And when you spend your time doing other stuff, you're not doing what God has commanded you to do. Now, I'm not saying you have to get a job and work for money. That's not the point. But the point is you need to be productive. You need to be on that road where you can contribute to the community, especially the church. You need to be productive. And that means that you never actually retire. You never actually just stop. It means that you use the energy and the gifting that you have to the best of your ability. And so if you can't work, find work. You don't have to be paid. Some of us would like to be professional students. That's great for a while. But being in school can be laziness as well because you'd rather continue in your schooling than actually get a job and work and produce something. We are called to be workers. And this work doesn't stop when you turn 65. I was hoping it did, but I'm getting close. But it doesn't. Right? 
In other words, we're called to be productive. It means that when you wake up in the morning, you say, Lord, what can I do in your service today? And it's more than self-improvement. It's got to be outward focused. And so what can I do with the energy that I have today? What can I do? Wake up with purpose every morning to work to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think that you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm too old to do anything. That's unbelief. Yes, you may not be able to be involved in all of the activities that you used to, but there are things that you can do. Can you dial a phone? Can you pray? There are things that you can do to contribute. And so for the believer, he doesn't get to loaf. He actually, it actually says, if you don't work, you don't eat. It doesn't say because you're getting money, because you get your pension, because you have saved all of your money, that you can do nothing. That's a lie of Satan. You are called to be contributing and working all the time. Now, I don't know how often we've thought of that. But the reality is, is that the Christian never, ever retires. And in fact, maybe we should put on our fridge, did I work today? Can I eat today? I obviously think I've been working quite hard. But the idea here is that we have to recognize that that we're called to do this. And so often we have been so influenced by society that we think that we, we, we've got it tough. Oh, worked an eight-hour day, come home, flop down on the couch. Wow, I went above and beyond today. Did you? Really? They used to work from sun, sundown to sunset. sunset. That's a 12-hour day, Right? Now, when we have to work that extra Friday, we're just like, wow. Like, where did my long weekend go? And yet we are called to what work or we don't eat. In fact, we're commanded certainly not to help those who are in this situation. And so as a church and as individuals, we need to have some discernment here where we look around and we say, okay, guess what? I can't help this person. I can't allow this person to continue in their sin because they simply refuse to be productive. They use all of their time for entertainment and rest rather than work. And so we're called as individuals and as a church to say, no, won't feed you. Won't feed you. Trust me, when people get hungry, they find, they find energy and reasons to work. And so we must do that as well. I remember Crystal's grandma, Grandma PH. She was diagnosed with arthritis. She was supposed to be dead at 30. She was stubborn. And in her late 70s and 80s, she came and lived with us in her home. 
And that woman worked every day. She made doilies to give out. She worked. She cleaned her place. She did the garden. We still remember Grandma going out to the, to the, to the garden to hoe. There she would be out working, and then you would watch, get a little too far forward, over she would go. <laughs> out she'd go, lift her back up. Are you okay, Grandma? You want to come in? No, got to get this done. So, of course, I closed my blinds just not to see that. <laughs> but she worked. She worked. She was feeble. She was feeble. She was weak, but she determined every day to work. And we need to demand more of ourselves. We need to demand that we too will be those who will what? Work like this. So Paul says, guess what? What should motivate you? The fear of being ostracized. What should motivate you? The apostolic example. We sacrificed. We worked hard. You should follow in it. And then thirdly, eating. If you want to eat, you need to work. Right? And if everyone works, there will be food to eat. Right? Everyone will be provided for. Now I'm debating here. We've got three left. I don't know if we'll make it through today. You guys want to stay late? <laughs> I think, I think we'll actually stop here today. But I, I do think, no, I'm going to keep going. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Fourthly, we're, we're told it brings peace in the body of Christ. Working helps keep peace in the body. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, Paul actually now introduces really the situation as to why he's, been, why he's writing this section. There are some among them who are le- leading an undisciplined life and not doing any work at all, but acting like busybodies. And this is their concern. So he says, we hear that some among you are leading this. And again, Paul says, we, this, has, this has come to us. There's been multiple reports since we wrote First Thessalonians, there's been people coming and there was a thriving commercial contact between Corinth and Thessalonica. And so that provided many occasions for people to travel and to come and to bring this news. This knowledge seems to be common knowledge at Thessalonica and it certainly, the information received seems to be authoritative and accurate enough and explicit enough for them to react to it. He says, the report that some of you are leading an undisciplined life. Again, there's a small identifiable group of people who are doing this. And you'll notice this. It says, some among you. He didn't say of you, but among you. And there's kind of a question in the back of the mind. What is the relationship of these people to the rest of the body? In other words, he says, they're among you. And there's almost that light bulb in your head that goes, but not of you. So what actually is a relationship? And maybe 
They're, he's trying to prompt in their mind of these people who are not working, that maybe they're not believers at all if they continue in this pattern. And so he, he, he does put that out there. So they're just, their behavior here has now put a barrier between them and other believers. And he says they are leading another. This is a persistent pattern that they are living an undisciplined life. That's their guilt. They are not working. And in fact, in not working, we would say that maybe undisciplined life here leads to greater, greater trouble as well. And it says they are doing no work at all, except by act, but acting like busybodies. There's kind of a word play here, but there's kind of like they are busy, but and being busybodies. In other words, there's this idea of working around is the idea. In other words, they're all around work, but they're actually not doing work. So they're 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 all about everything. They're busy and they're working. They're they're, we would say in a in a in a in a big hurry and doing a meddlesome and doing all sorts of things, but they're actually not doing anything productive. They're, they have a bustling disposition. They're busy, but at useless things. Paul uses the same term about work here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Timothy 5.13, of persons who are paying attention to things that do not concern one, meddlesome and curious. So they're not doing any work at all. They're not doing any daily toil. But they are busybodies. They're meddlesome. The, one translation says, minds everybody's business but their own. Now we're not told how they're active in being busybodies. We're not, we're not told how that expresses itself. Most assume that they have heard that the day of the Lord has come, and therefore they think that the end is near, and therefore they have stopped being idle. They've stopped working, they've become idle, and now they are maybe even going around to each, each other's homes and saying, and, and the ones who have stopped working are going to the working places and saying, hey, I don't, uh, you know what, why are you working? What's going on here? Like the Lord's coming back, Relax. Sit back. There's no use trying to make money. Why do any more business? It's just going to cause it. But whatever it is, these people are, are now concerned with other people's businesses. They're getting into the business of others and preventing them from doing what they need to do. One writer says they're sitting around for hours in the bazaars and little shops of other members making a nuisance of themselves, trying to unsettle the stable members with their fanciful notions. And so he says, Here, here's this group of people who instead of working are busybodies. Paul says, now such persons we commend and exhort in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Paul says, instead of being a busybody, instead of being, uh, causing trouble with everybody else and getting into everybody else's business, he says, you are to work in a quiet fashion. In a, in a, in a quiet fashion. 
He says, we command you, we exhort you. In other words, this is, this is an order, but it's also coming in the sense, in the sense of an exhortation. In other words, he's coming alongside with a brotherly exhortation and admonition to them. He says, I, I want to come alongside. I want, to, I want you to recognize your need to do this. And he says, we do it in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do it in union with him. So he says, I want you to work in a quiet fashion. Literally with quietness working. It points to a quality of mind that is to be associated with their work. Its condition of inward peace and tranquility reflecting itself in outward calmness. It's the opposite of fussy activity as busybodies. In other words, they are expected to be steadily engaged in regular employment. That's what he's saying. Lead a quiet life in a quiet fashion. Go about your work. Be engaged in regular employment. Be settled in it. And he says, in the Lord. The labor in the Lord. And again, right there, he says to us, there is no work that is secular for the believer. He has elevated it all to Christian service. It means all the work that you do, no matter what occupation you are in, is into the Lord. It is an act of worship to God. And then he says this, and they will eat their own bread, and they are to eat their own bread. Their own, right? The emphasis is on their own bread. It's, the emphasis is that they have earned it by their work and therefore they can, they can eat because they have worked. Thus they cease to be nuisances and a source of irritation among the members. And so he says here, this is why you work because ultimately it promotes what? Harmony in the church. It promotes peace. Instead of being busybodies and having all of this time and causing trouble because you now can look up and there's lots of time to get into everybody's business, you'll be busy working. One of God's ways of keeping peace in the church is to have its members working. Not only does it make sure there's enough resources for everyone, it stops the irritation of a mooch and stops the imitation of a mooch. It also keeps people busy and it keeps them away from being busybodies. Work is one of God's ways to keep us from sinning. The more a society goes into entertainment, the more they go into leisure, the more corrupt they get because they have time. And when we are busy at work, it's hard to get into trouble. When you're out plowing the field in the back 40, it's hard to be in town robbing the bank. Just makes sense, right? It's a lack of opportunity. And one of the things that God has done in work has given us a lack of opportunity. We simply cannot do that. And so Paul says, one of the motivations for you as a believer is to recognize that work is God's way of keeping peace in the church. It's one of his ways to contribute and to keep their, from being, having disunity. Well, the fifth motivation is simply shame. 
But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will not be put to shame. Paul now turns to those who are free from blame and he, he addresses them affectionately again as brethren. He says, don't weary in doing good. He's not saying that they're already weary, but he says, don't contemplate. Don't, don't get to that point where you are weary of doing good. Doing good means to continue to do what is right, noble, honorable, and upright. And there might be those who look across at the brethren who are doing nothing and is still surviving, and they might say, why do I bother? But Paul says, actually continue to do the things that you're called to do, and even in this correction of, this bro- of the brethren, make sure you do that. Paul doesn't want them to react with extremism and shut off the, off the noble benevolence and compassion to those who truly need it and deserve it. Nor does he want the Thessalonians to become so cynical towards the unruly that they will give up on them. Rather, they are proactively to do good towards those who need it. At the same time, they are not to indulge the incorrigible. So Paul says, this is what you are to do. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, Paul's writing this letter to them and he's giving them instructions on how they are to work and how they are to behave. He's given them instructions already in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. But those instructions were disregarded by the disorderly members. And Paul recognizes that there might be some who might not obey them. So in anticipation, he says, if anyone does not obey these instructions in this letter, take special note of them. So he anticipates there might be them, some who, because they've already rejected his first teaching, will reject this. So he says, you are to what? You who are faithful are to take notice of them. Take note of them is the idea. Specifically, take note of that person. Take note of that specific person. And mark him out for yourselves. Like, mark him. Look at him. Know who he is. Do this for yourself. This is something that you must do in your own interest. In other words, a a believer who is not working is not in your best interest. Think about that. A believer who is not working is not in your best interest. Because he brings down the name of the Lord, he brings down the testimony of the church, and he may ultimately take the resources of the church. Now make note here, could mean to just take a note in his mind, but it also seems to have the idea of a public action or or being exposed by the church. In other words, it's only effective if the united act of the congregation does this, right? If only some of us do it and some of us don't, it won't be effective. But he says we are to take note and be united in this. And he says they are called not to associate with them, quite literally, not mixing yourself up with them or do not mix up socially. So the meaning is intimate association with the individual as a close and acceptable friend. In other words, there needs to be a barrier there. There needs to be a withdrawal. The demand is that such an association must be discontinued. It must not be allowed to carry on. 
And so the reluctant members to be put under the pressure of the group disapproval through social ostracism. There's to avoid making contact with them. But what does that accomplish? Well, according to Paul, it's so that they will be put to shame. So they will be put to shame. Basically, it has the idea of be, to be turned in on oneself, which means to be ashamed. To feel, literally, to feel what you really are. In other words, it's supposed to expose to this person who they are, that they are disobedient, that they are a rebellious sinner who refuses to do what God has called them to do. And so that in withdrawing, it's supposed to what brings shame on them. To, to cause them to realize the rebellion that they are and their need to repent. So Paul says we should be motivated because we never want to be in the position where we are forced to, be, to recognize and to be shamed for our disobedience. In other words, we want to be those who immediately respond to what God calls us to do. That we would never have to be shamed by the church by our brothers and sisters, and that we would never feel that shame. We don't want to be driven to this point. We don't have to want others to have to push us to be shamed. We don't want to be ashamed for not working. So Paul says, don't be shamed. You don't want to be shamed. Go to work. And you can avoid that. So he says, don't be ostracized. Follow my example. Motivated by eating, by bringing peace, by not feeling shame. And lastly, by love. He says, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So Paul is again speaking to the, good, to, to the faithful brethren here. And he says to them, I just want to put a check on this because it's pretty easy to get carried away because we get righteous and then we get self-righteous and we go after people. And he says that first of all, do not regard him as an enemy. Don't treat him like somebody who is against God and against the church, someone that is, that is a heathen and a pagan. Watch your attitude towards him. Don't allow your feelings to get the best of you and then therefore not be able to give a true evaluation of this man. You are to regard this here uh, and to, to regard him. In other words, you are to, to look at him and look at the, on the external grounds of what he's actually doing, not on your, your inner feelings or your sentiment. And it says you are to regard him not to regard him as an enemy, but what? Admonish him as a brother. The idea of admonish is to set one's mind, to set in one's mind. And so he says, you are to go to your brother and set into your minds. In other words, you take the word of God and with the goal of obedience and you, you apply it to your brother because you are appealing to him as a brother. He's not an enemy. He's not a heretic. He's not someone who is to be despised, but he is to be loved like a brother. And therefore you go to him and you appeal to him through the word of God to be obedient to what he knows to be true. It 
And he says, don't go there angry. Don't go there upset. Don't go up there hateful towards him. You'll only drive him farther away. And Paul says, I want, my concern is to restore this brother. And he says, let your, the way that you treat this brother, let the love that you demonstrate motivate him to come back. And he says, be motivated by the fact that your brothers will come. They will put their love upon you and they will treat you like a brother. And so he says, this should motivate you that the love of the brethren will come after you. They will continue to work with you. And so Paul says, let that motivate you to go to work. Let, let, let as you, maybe even as this process is taking place and as the brethren are coming, you look up and you see them coming to exhort you in the word and call you to obedience. And the love that they demonstrate should motivate you to return and to work and to do what God has called you to do. We need to work. We're called to work. We live in a society that is hostile. They are looking for any opportunity to spread unfavorable rumors and to slander the church and ultimately our Lord Jesus Christ. It is important that we live in such a way to provide a practical refutation of such rumors. That's why Paul gives these injunctions to the Thessalonians. This is why he calls them to work. Let us, instead of adding fuel to the fire, put it out by being workers of, that God has, be the workers that God has called us to be. When Christians diligently pursue the vocation to which God has called them, God is honored. When they pursue the work that is available to them, God is honored. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.1, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be what? Spoken against. Let us be workers for the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word. It again has been down to earth, it's been clear to us. And so we ask that you would make us faithful to the tasks that you give us. The tasks that we do at home, at work, just general work, wherever we are. Help us to be obedient to your call. Help us to please you and to honor you. And so we pray that you would make us workers for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in your name. Amen.